Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. And I'm James Rizika. And uh, every episode, we watch two movies, a new movie and an old movie, and uh, try to connect the dots. Uh, and uh, this episode, we watched uh, The Northman, the new hyper-violent revenge thriller from Robert Eggers, uh, released uh, this year. And uh, we're comparing it to 1957's The Seventh Seal, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Um, so it's two films about the medieval mindset. Do you think these two make a good pairing? They made an excellent pairing. I was thinking about them both all week long and ended up with some interesting thoughts that, that came to me as uh, quite a surprise between the, between the two films. So, well, thoughts. I love thoughts. Mm. I, right, so I'm looking forward to your thoughts. So, so we'll, we'll start out by talking about The Northman. So Robert Eggers, uh, director of The Witch, uh, which I have seen, and The Lighthouse, which I haven't seen. Have you seen his previous films? I've not seen The Witch. I would like to go back and see that. I saw The Lighthouse and was not terribly impressed, not very happy with it. Um, okay. And I did listen to a podcast that I'll reference a couple of times because uh, Eggers was on um, Mark Maron's podcast last week, okay. which is called WTF. So I'll bring some of those insights in as well. And he, even he sounded a little, I don't know, reluctant or apprehensive to talk too much about The Lighthouse because I think it, you know, it's kind of like a sophomore film, kind of bold and ambitious, but I think he lost the story a little bit and he admitted as much. So maybe I'm putting more words and thoughts in. Difficult second mind. album. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So, so this time around for the Northman. So this is uh, it's an eleventh century Norse um, tale. It's based on the same story that Shakespeare based Hamlet on. It's about Amleth. So you take take the H from Hamlet and put it at the end of the word instead of the beginning. He is a prince to King um, Arundel or Arundel. Uh, he sees his father killed by his uncle. He sees his mother kidnapped and so yeah, he escapes as a boy and he vows revenge. And many years later, he's become a huge, violent Viking raider. Uh, he meets a witch who tells him that he will avenge himself, disguises himself as a slave, gets sold to his uncle unknowingly. And then he plots with, with another witch that he's met, Olga. Uh, he bides his time. Uh, he learns the truth of his father's death and eventually he gets his revenge. Um, and uh, the first thing that really stuck in my mind and stuck in my head where, when I saw this film at the local cinema is that in the UK, uh, every film uh, has, is given a certificate uh, by the, the British Board of Film Classification. And these days, so this is a 15 certificate. So people over 15 are allowed to see this film, people under 15 are a lot. But these days at the cinema, I don't know if they do this in the States, they explain to you in a little summary mm. why... Why they come up with the decision that they have. They explain a little warning card of what you're going to come up with. And uh, and I had to go back to the website to check what it says. So I And I've written it down here in my notes. So the warning card before the Northman, it says, uh, Certificate 15, strong bloody violence, gore, sexual violence, sex, nudity. Spells it all out like, like it's... And I, that strikes me, that's like the lyrics to a prodigy song, isn't it? I think. <laughs> but it's... Um, and, and that is... Uh, very much the tone of the film right from the outset. This is a very violent film. Um, it's interesting insofar as it's uh, it it melds the the magical world of the characters with the concrete world, which I think is the most interesting thing about it. That um, the characters live in this kind of earthy physical world and simultaneously live in this kind of spiritual world of gods, and the film draws no line between them. 
I thought it was an interesting um, exploration of the mindset of 11th century man um, that uh, that um, you live simultaneously in the physical and the spiritual world. Um, whereas I think for a film about the modern mind, you would draw a line between those two and you'd understand that, you know, the world of, of, of gods and monsters is somehow kind of separate that, the, you know, when you go to heaven, you go to it. It's a separate place. It's not included in your in your current world. Um, but uh, despite all this violence, um, you know, and, and quite a lot of action and some well shot action and some very memorable action scenes. I don't know how you felt. I felt not quite enough happened in this film. Um, so there are some entertaining scenes and there is a bit of levity. It's not dour all the way through. There's some entertaining father and son games right at the beginning of the film. Mm. And Amlet is a boy and uh, he's being uh, indicted into the adult world. And they kind of pretend to be dogs and um, they kind of drink this magic potion to to, to seal their bond. Um and there's, there's quite an amusing... I thought the best scene in the film is when they go and play like an early version of hockey uh, where slaves from two different villages oh. are playing against each other and it's extremely hyper-violent rollerball-style hockey game, <laughs> which, was, which is kind of, you know, kind of hilarious, but also still marred by hyper-violence at the same time. Um, the other memorable scene that really sticks in my mind is a fight with a ghost king. Uh, it's all done in one long tracking shot, which um, really underlines the way that the the magical world and the real world occupy the same space. But you know, despite all this action and this fun, and you know, and there's a bit of levity and there's a lot of fighting and a lot of blood and gore, I did come away feeling that not enough happened. Did enough happen for you in this film? Uh, no, no, I agree with you one hundred percent. And not only did not enough happen, but the little that happened felt very like hero's journey it was nothing new nothing new covered really you know even the whole bit about getting the magical sword i mean these are things we've yeah. tropes we've seen again and again as you said it as you were retelling it a little bit it's hamlet it really is and uh, the fact that the guy's <laughs> name is amleth uh <laughs> sort of underscores that um i think egger said that it was a while of doing the research and sort of doing the writing before he realized because it, it is sort of taken from an ancient uh, viking tale um, that he realized too that it's you know its roots are really in the same story that Hamlet comes from I guess so yeah it's it's, it's a, a revenge tale um, yeah so it's it's not a whole lot more than that you know it's a boy who saw his father killed in front of him by his uncle his mother ends up with the brother I mean it feels just like Hamlet and it's just far more <laughs> violent and uh, uh, yeah not as much happens really so it was quite um, disappointing I think. You've touched on something interesting where you're talking about this characters who lives both in the spiritual world and the physical world at the same time. But, you know, we only get the story from a couple of perspectives. So I don't know if that's true of all the characters yeah. or is it really just true of the, the fam that what is it, this sort of tree of kings that we sort of explore in the in the film, like the family lines. Um, they seem to have it. They seem to have the access to the, I don't know, the wizards or the court jesters who can give them certain drugs. They eat some soup with foul things. Yeah, in it, it looks like some, yeah, some interesting mushrooms, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if everyone had access to that. So I'm not sure everyone lives in that, you know, two-world state. But um, as a result, uh, yeah, I didn't feel like enough happened. It's a long film. It's two hours, 20 minutes or so. Um, so it's, it's epic without really having a... I don't know, I mean, an epic story. And when you think about it, there are not a whole lot of subplots that keep it along either. It's really this one guy who just has to uh, seek revenge and and make it happen. 
I tell you, I think I think this film suffers from. I, I think this um, sort of phenomenon that deserves a name. I'm going to call it good boy syndrome, because mm-hmm. Amleth is told at the beginning of the film by his father. The, the father tells him it's um, it's Ethan Hawke, isn't it? Yes, he's the father, is, actually, yeah. and he tells him, "Oh, son, I will die by the sword, and you will avenge me." And then the boy goes off, and he does exactly that. The, yeah. you know, the, the dad dies by the sword, and then the boy spends the rest of the movie, you know, avenging him. He's he's a good boy, and he does what he's told. And after a you know particularly brutal battle, um, he runs into this kind of mysterious witch. A funny turn by Bjork. Bjork, yeah. Uh, he's, he's 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 kind of great, very watchable um, on screen. She's this kind of random witch turns up, and she tells him, uh, "You must find the holy sword." And, and kill your uncle by the river of fire. So she gives him these instructions and then he goes and he does that and he looks for the holy sword and finds it and then he waits to, to kill his uncle by the river of fire. He, he, this is the, you know, he's a good boy and he does exactly what he's told. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is, like, there is like a seven minute passage in the film where for this very brief moment he doesn't do what he's told. And I thought um, that was when the film threatened to become interesting. Ah. And then, yeah, and then kind of they throw that away and he goes back to doing the thing that he was told to do at the end of the movie and 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 continues to be a good boy right up until his final breath and this i but some people may feel that these kind of films about prophecies and chosen ones and and people who are fulfilling their destiny somehow they feel epic and uh, and um heroic i sort of feel like uh, they feel linear and um and unenlightening I don't know, there's only so much entertainment to be get out of out of to be got out of watching someone do what they're told. Yeah, good point. And it, it, everything's sort of announced in advance, and it just plays out uh, by the numbers ex- exactly as the I don't know the soothsayers or the the uh, magical characters uh, tell you they're going to play out. So yeah, there's and this kind of film you kind of know where it's going anyway the whole time. So the fact that there's even less surprise I think is sort of a mistake <laughs> in the in the storytelling and. You can't cover it up with uh, any amount of blood. And I really enjoyed reading your email when you said that three days after the film, you were still wiping the blood off yourself. I did, <laughs> there was a lot of blood a lot in this of film. Blood. Oh, my yeah. God, yes. And I saw it in the theater as well, and I felt the same way. And like That's almost the thing, is that the film sort of incriminates us all as humans and that we're all kind of violent, I guess. And, and I felt that way just watching the film. Um, so I, you know, I, I loved your comment. I thought it was just spot on. It, uh, I don't know whether the film would have had the same impact or would have had more impact with less violence. I tell you what, I, th- I think the film would have um, had more impact from would be if there would be more characters who told him uh, not to, to seek revenge. I think you know there's a, a brief period where um, Anya Taylor Joy is the witch uh, yeah. that he kind of he pals up with, tells him, you know, don't do this, come and have a family with me, and he very nearly does it, and then and then kind of chickens out and, and goes back to being a good boy again. I felt like maybe if there were more characters who were who were telling him don't do this and giving him reasons not to do this, yeah. If because because surely the, the underlying theme of the film is that revenge is bad, isn't it? Revenge will destroy you, which is not not which is a a, a a useful message, but not a profound one. And if um, there had been more people telling him, you know, don't waste your life, son. Yeah, you know, you've got you've got a whole life to live. The past is the past. Um. And even you know the moment where he discovers that his father's death wasn't exactly what he thought it was, and that his mother's kidnapping wasn't quite what he thought it was. Mm. Uh, even that doesn't doesn't change his mind. Um, whereas somehow, if there had been more um, competing voices, or if we felt that it was a believable reason why he might make a different choice, 
there yeah. would have been a bit more tension in the film. I don't think you know, there's, there's, we've talked about this before. There isn't really any story without people making a choice. And it doesn't feel like Amleth makes a choice in this film. He just does what he's told. It's not that he elects to to um, avenge his father. He's just told to avenge his father and he does it. He does it. Yeah. So it, it feels like uh, they're sort of exploring this uh, chain of toxic masculinity, I think, in this film as well, where um, he's told what he's going to do and he just continues the, the train of violence <laughs> regardless. Um, and I think you, you, yeah. you pointed to a great movie, a great movie moment there. Um, Nicole Kidman doesn't have a whole lot to do in this film, but in that one scene where she does try to sort of stop him or enlighten him, it's a pretty good piece of acting um, that stands out in the film because there's not a whole lot of solid acting. There's lots of grunting and, and a lot of really funny <laughs> accents that we should probably talk about because I couldn't figure out where I was. There's a little bit of Irish here. They would go into these Eastern European accents. It was all over the place. It made it very difficult to to follow. So in that way, I was happy that you had these characters announcing exactly what was going to happen because I did understand what was happening. But right. uh, but Nicole Kidman really does change the whole film there. It's a good moment. and But no, I think the, the, the train of thought, the train of action is I'm just going to keep on doing what Vikings have done before me for hundreds of years, and I'll go out and kill some more people until I've, I've sought my revenge. So um, you do have a good point there that there is no choice. And I think when we look at Seventh Seal, we'll see that the characters are thinkers, too, and they're eloquent. So they're actually fighting with words far more than they're actually fighting right, with, yeah. with swords, which is I think it would have made the story... Um, uh, a bit more interesting if they, if they had more to say. I mean, there was some dialogue in there, of course, but it was a little bit clunky and it was just serving that one purpose of we've got to get to the revenge, we've got to get to the revenge. This is where this story goes ultimately. Um, so I, I thought the, I did think the accents were a big problem, actually. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I, spent, I spent quite a lot of the time reminded far too much of the Swedish chef from the Muppets. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure who the dialogue coach was, but I... I um, and, and I agree. Yeah, there was all sorts of kind of, sort of, yeah, slightly weird variable accents, even with the same actors. I sort of feel like for these movies, unless you're going to speak in some kind of early Norse... Yeah. Um, why not just get people to speak in English using their own voices and it will stop distracting you? And it probably would have been, yeah. for this. It, it's um, Hunt for Red October, isn't it? Yes. Where um, Sean Connery plays a, a Russian, Russian yeah. submarine captain with a Scottish accent. <laughs> and if he, if he tried to do a Russian accent all the way through the movie, you just would have been unable to get past it. Yeah. Whereas, um, you know, the fact that you ignore all the accent training and just go with the acting yeah. um, means that you can put all that behind you and get on and listen to the character. Yeah. And I think that would have been far more effective here. I don't think we needed the kind of the weird accents. No, and I think, you know, for a language consultant, this film would be really difficult. You've got an Australian actor, a Swedish actor, an American actor. I think she's an Argentine actor in there. I think there was an Irish actor in there. I mean, it's just a mixed group to begin with. So you're asking them all to do some variation on what they think is uh, the accent of the time and uh, they're coming to it with different material I think and different accents so it was just it was messy I thought that was messy yep. and I agree yep. with you it could have just been very very I don't know anglicized somehow that might have helped it but I don't know for exact for sure um, he, Eggers did talk a lot about historical accuracy and he talked about he'd worked with scholars on this film supposed to be very authentic. I'm going to make an argument later that I think The Seventh Seal actually is, even though Bergman doesn't really make an attempt for historical accuracy, it's far more <laughs> accurate or it feels more authentic anyway. Right, yeah, um, yeah. But he definitely, I think, I mean, some of the violence is p absolutely pathological. I think that's what bothered me the most is it. <laughs> it's not like just, uh, you know, a quick uh, slice of a sword and guy bleeds and falls over there. You know, swords going through necks and arrows going into the throat and... Uh, 
This is kind of weird dismemberment yeah. scene, isn't there? Which you only kind of glimpse very briefly, but you know, two or three characters have been mis- dismembered and then and then kind of hammered together into this strange animal shape. I mean, it's just oh yeah, bizarre. I, I wonder whether you in a, in the 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 R-rated version, the yeah. camera would linger on that strange tableau a little bit longer. Yeah. But the happy thing about that scene is that um, it it does lead to the film's best gag, which is. Um, when uh, when these dismembered bodies turn up and all the villagers are trying to figure out who will have done this and one person says oh it must be the christians their god is a corpse nailed to a tree that's right which are... that's a good line yeah that's, that's, good that's yeah that's as good a description of christianity as i've heard in a long time yeah but that is your protagonist doing that so you're really getting into the mind of some psychological uh just pathology yeah. on a very very sick order and uh that's your. That's the good guy in the film. That's the guy getting revenge. Is <laughs> absolutely carving up people like uh, a butcher would. Uh, it's rough. So I, for me, I, so so in the interview with Mark Maron, Edgar says he doesn't really make films to communicate message. Like he's not trying to say anything. He just wants to show characters with no judgment. Um, but I mean, it. He's really capturing a violent time, and I think he's really overplaying it. I'll talk about this probably more when we get to the Bergman film, but. Um, my the irony of optimism for me was um, this Viking culture and the, the places where the Vikings came from originally. These are now the most socialist and peaceful and neutral <laughs> countries in the world, right? Mm, um, yeah, and it feels like a commentary on where we are as you know. I'm going to say Americans today, or you can add the English too. I want to incriminate you in that way, but how violent <laughs> we have become, and so. My optimism is that, like, in another seven or eight hundred years, I think the United States could be a very peaceful socialist paradise <laughs> where we're not beating each other up and killing each other. But uh, So just around the corner, then. Yes. <laughs> if we still have a planet and a world, uh, there's Only another the 24 United generations and maybe we'll get on. <laughs> but uh, he does, yeah, he really plays that violence. And I think, you know, I think there's a commentary. I think he's trying to comment on t- in the time today, but it might just be that he wants to make an epic film about... Uh, Vikings, I think. Disturbingly, the film apparently has been a big hit with white supremacists Mm. uh, who see it as a great example of um, traditional values and manly men doing men-type things. And all the women in the film, they all do sort of women-type jobs. And uh, the women are happy to be um, either the producers of babies or do housework around the house. Yeah. I'm not sure what I would feel if I made a film which then turned out to be popular with white supremacists, but I hope it would ring an alarm bell or make you think, oh, I wonder yes. if I approach this project the right way. Yeah. Well, the, the the old adage that came to me a lot in the last few days thinking about these two films was, you know, the, the, the target demographic for a lot of films these days is that 12 to 24-year-old, 25-year-old boy, young man. Um, they've got, I guess, the disposable income to go out and see movies. They've got the time to go out and see movies. Like, <laughs> right, go on yep. movies or, or date nights or whatever. I don't know. This is a great date film, but um, and then there are the other films, uh, and I think this week we're covering you know one that's definitely targeted for uh, the young man, the young boy group, and then I think we're looking at one that's far more adult in in every way. So, um, but this, I thought about this that feels a lot. like a terrible film for, uh, to, to offer up as entertainment for twelve to twenty five. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, the, what, what's the message you're sending? <laughs> Interestingly, although we in the audience can identify the Amleths. Um, campaign of revenge is utterly pointless. Um, the film yeah. doesn't present it that way, does he? And it, it does. I mean, it's interesting if if um, if Edgar says that he wants to present the characters of that judgment, because at the end of the film, um, 
more or less every character in the film is dead. Almost every character is dead. It's a proper Hamlet style ending. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. But uh, there is no taste of regret, I would say, in the film. Instead, it feels like a vindication and a triumph. Yeah, yeah. Um, which he, is yeah, he's smiling. Yeah, absolutely. He? What a what a terrible message to give to twelve to twenty five year olds. <laughs> I'm sure twelve to twenty five year olds are cleverer and more discerning than to simply do what they are told, as Amleth does yeah, in the film. Oh, yeah. But um, I do wonder whether there should have been a little bit more nuance in this film. Yeah. I think a lot more, a lot more nuance, um, for sure. It reminded me, this is going to sound really strange, it reminded me of The Wolf of Wall Street, because uh-huh. it's the same sort of thing where it's a different age, different kind of plunder, but I think Scorsese in that film, too, he's making no comment, no judgment about these really sinister characters in, in today's uh, sheep's clothing, I guess, whereas I th- I th- the Vikings are literally wearing sheep <laughs> in, at some scenes, right? They and are, yeah, It's very absolutely. obvious that they're doing bad, yeah. I mean, you're right, at the end of The Wolf of Wall Street... Um, a lot of people in the audience, myself included, did feel a little bit of hey, this you know, this um, you know, this large scale financial fraud business looks like it's great fun. Maybe I should consider doing yeah, some of that. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely. I think you you have to make some judgment. I, I don't know. Um, whether, whether, that, does anybody come away thinking, oh, this 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 bloody revenge business looks fun? I might try and do some of that. <laughs> I think oh so. Oh my god, and some will. I was looking really hard. Is there a feminist take in here? Because we end up with a a, a female queen, don't they? That's part of that whole tree scene in the beginning where we're looking for the next king or the next ruler. And yeah, and um, a- Amleth he gets he gets laid once in this film, and it ends up producing twins, as far as I can tell. So that's quite a quite a, quite <laughs> it's a, a very fair accomplishment. Man. Yes, um, and one is going to be a twin girl. And uh, with the, her, her brother, I guess her brother doesn't become a king in the future, but uh, we're sort of led to believe that she becomes the, the his daughter becomes the first uh, female queen for his, I don't know, his tribe, his his people. Um, so I think is there, there's really nothing feminist in it because ultimately, that's it. You've got one powerful female character, a couple, maybe Nicole Kidman's character has some power as well. Um, and then through that bloodline, you're going to get a queen. But otherwise, you know, there's nothing... Nothing along those lines either. So I, I didn't see you know, struggling. What's he trying to do here? And I was I was looking for a message that the director plainly said he doesn't want to give you anyway. So and I do feel within the context of the world, when when Olga turns up at her destination, they hire a boat to take them to the Orkneys, and she ends up yeah. going on her own. And in the world, in the yeah. film of the the world of the film, I can't imagine her turning up at the Orkneys and then being hailed as a the mother of a queen and and beginning beginning a you know a a, a great new dynasty of rulers yeah um i rather suspect that you know she's going to go from being a slave in one island to a slave in another island and she's probably got a dismal Precisely. future ahead of her and you have to question yeah. you know are our children even going to survive could we talk about the ending for just a yeah. moment well probably, probably end up we'll giving up giving away everything on the ending but spoilers spoilers yeah so i was a bit perplexed because for some reason these two guys end up totally naked <laughs> Among these lava flows, they both knew exactly where to go. They say, I'm going to meet you at the gates of hell and you will die there. And the other guy says the same thing. It's not like they made a date or an appointment, but they've come, they kind of knew what the gates of hell were. Because I think we should probably mention that there's this metaphorical volcano that starts smoking in the beginning of the film. And it starts right, to yeah. erupt more and more throughout. And by the end, uh, it's all over the sort of the village where much of the action takes place. And these two guys are totally naked. 
and they're swinging big swords, but they're not swinging big swords. The the message I took away from this film was that Vikings had very small penises. <laughs> and I don't know if you get that. I mean, invisible, invisible. <laughs> C- CGI I mean, removed penises. <laughs> there's a point to show how naked they are, and I don't know why they get fully naked. You'd think maybe they'd want something on to... Uh, to defend a sword blow or something like but, that. Uh, but then if, but you, if, you're totally fi- if you're fighting next to a lava flow, it's hot around there. You, yeah, it's hot, it's I guess. sweaty. Okay. You, need, you need to... Getting a good skin sweat breathe. in, like the sauna. <laughs> All right. With your uncle, with your nephew, <laughs> swinging the big swords. It was it was a very strange ending for me. Um, bizarre homoeroticism. There's another sort of moment of incest or potential incest in this film, too. And it's some pretty disturbing moments, so... Yeah, they had penises, I guess, but we just don't see them at all. And you'd think, you know, with all the buttocks in the film and female parts and male parts, um, we see so much nudity. Some of it's like mutilated nudity, but it's no penises. It's, it's, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's it's bordering on body horror at times. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yet also, yeah, strangely chaste. It's funny. I, I must say, in my mind, I remember them wearing little mini loincloths as they fight next to the lava. Uh, but maybe mm-hmm. that is my mental after-the-fact censorship. I don't know. Unless, unless this is, this is, also, this is yeah. one of the other changes they made to get a 15th certificate in the UK. Perhaps, yeah. You're, yep, you're allowed to uh, to show all sorts of strong bloody violence, but not a penis. No way. <laughs> um, so uh, it's an interesting film to have been hyped quite so effectively. There have been big posters for The Northman here. It's been promoted very okay. heavily. And I was expecting something you know, a little bit more mainstream and a little bit more straightforward. So it, you know, it's, it is a strange and almost experimental film and not yeah. exactly what I expected when I bought my ticket. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you what the budget was or whether it looks likely that it will make it back, but it strikes me as someone has spent quite a lot of money and assembled a very impressive cast to tell what is a yep. you know a strange and rather detached sort of simple drawn out story. Yeah, uh, sixty million dollars in what is being billed here a little bit as an art film, art epic kind yeah, of. It uh, does feel like it belongs on the art house screen. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I'll talk about that probably a little bit later when we get to the Seventh Seal as well, because um, on the podcast that I listened to, they talked about it. But yeah, it means making its money back. You're thinking it's got to do close to two hundred million before it pays for everything. And it's in, difficult to see a film meal, like so. that. Yeah, you know, it's not. I mean, I don't think they're going to sell a lot of toys. Put it that way. There's, there's yeah. not going to be. You know, it's not going to be a big yeah. merchandising drive and, and Northman lunchboxes. And I, I don't think films make money the way they used to, in the sense that you really could count tickets and and butts and seats, and you could get an idea of how much it was making. But with, I don't know where this goes next. If it goes to Netflix or something like that, but then you're getting down to the subscription level, where I think you're splitting your profit with a, a lot of other products uh, that are playing on the same platform. So potentially, it could have long legs, I suppose. There's a, there's a, yeah. There is a kind um, of a, a, a strange timelessness to it. So you know, maybe people will still be watching it. Um, and and yeah. certainly our, our, our other film um, has very long legs because uh, The Seventh Seal was made in 1957. Well, Shall we have a break? Very long. Um, and then we'll come back and talk about The Seventh Seal and see whether we can figure out if there is any connections between The Northmen and that. Let's, Let's do it. I'll see you in a minute. Welcome back, everyone. 
Uh, next up, we're going to talk about The Seventh Seal, which is a 1957 film by the Swedish master Ingmar Bergman. And this film, for me, really appeals more to the old farts. So we were talking about the... <laughs> The 12 to 24 year old uh, demographic, I think for me, I've aged into this demographic. Um, <laughs> is this an art film? Is this a classic? Um, it fits right in with the, uh, the ethos of this podcast a little bit for me because I think that uh, when we first started talking about it, I was very happy to hear that you hate films. <laughs> Just as much as I do, for the most part. <laughs> yep. I, when, when we first talked about doing this podcast, yeah, the thing you told me was I hate ninety percent of everything. <laughs> yes, and exactly. I can agree with that. I think yeah. you said ninety-five or something. <laughs> I was impressed. Um, but I think you know we do have this perspective. I think that uh, we're middle-aged guys. I am at least. I don't know about Jimmy, but um, we're writers. <laughs> yeah. Um, so sometimes we uh, talk out of malice and spite and uh, frustration, but I think we bring a good angle uh, to a lot of these films, and I just want to say that I saw this film three times in my life. Once when I was in that demographic, I saw it on video or VHS when I was probably in my early 20s, and then uh, probably my 30s on a bigger screen in a library with a bunch of academic folks watching it, and then recently I saw it, now that I'm in my 50s, um, all alone, the way I should, kind of depressed on a dark, cold night <laughs> on a big television. And uh, I'm just loving it more and more every time I see it. So I am biased towards actually enjoying this film and loving this film as opposed to hating it. So That's a good um, start. That's a good start. Yeah, it's a pretty good start. Um, so 1957, Max von Zito, B.B. Anderson, who filmed in a, or acted in a lot of uh, Bergmar films. We just talked about The Northman at $60 million. Uh, this film was made for $150,000, <laughs> which translates, I understand, to about $1.5 wow. today. So imagine making a masterpiece for $1.5 million on a 35-day shooting schedule. Uh, the source material is a one-act play that Bergman wrote for his theater students that he was teaching at the time. So there are some times when it feels like theater on film, um, but I think the photography is so incredible, um, and it's just become sort of a touchstone film in the entire canon, um, despite the fact that it was sort of invented as, as theater. Um, this is 94% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> from the critics, 93 from the viewers, compared to Northman, 89, and 66. This is interesting to me that a lot of people, still a minority, but you know, 37% of the folks, 36% of the folks, aren't really that impressed with the Northman on Rotten Tomatoes yeah. anyway. Um, I guess I, I came back into this thinking after, because I saw The Northman first and I thought, well, Bergman's going to know how to do Vikings in those times a lot better than um, Eggers would know how to it's do it. This world, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think, um, as I said earlier, and I'll talk about it, but uh, it, it feels really historically accurate. Um, there's something about um, Bergman getting the, the time right, because I actually imagine that without the day-to-day -day grind of a job, and large cities, I think life was a hell of a lot more boring than Eggers makes it seem <laughs> in The Northman, right? I mean, just slow stuff. You've got to find your food. You've got to keep yourself busy without Netflix, without television, <laughs> without uh, sports. Um, so I think that uh, I think he gets that pacing um, so much better than uh, Eggers would uh, for that time period. Um, the first thing I noticed is the ocean is not nearly as mean in... Uh, Seven Seal as it is in Eggers. It seems yeah. like there's always just some massive storm on the ocean. I think Eggers is really going for these big images that show the turbulence and the, and the tumult of the times. But uh, this opens with the classic, much parodied, much celebrated scene of the figure of death coming to um, Max von Zito's um, Antonius Block as he returns from the 
the Crusades abroad and they start playing chess on the beach. But that scene happens and like in the a, first five minutes of the film, isn't it? It's like one of the most, most famous it's, images in cinema. When I saw this film, is. I'd seen that scene parodied in so many different oh, places yeah. before I oh, saw God. the film itself. So I, I, yeah. I, like you, I've seen it before. I saw it once when I was probably in my 20s. I think I quite enjoyed it then and then seen it again just now. And yeah, there's no messing. You get to this magnificent, iconic scene yeah. right at the top. It's, yes, yes. it's right at the beginning of the film. And uh, it's great. Even if it's been parodied, uh, it's still just a great scene. And uh, Von Zito's character is sort of trying to play for his life. If he wins the game, uh, he'll be spared his life. Um, but Death has said he's coming for him. But he's going to go on this sort of little journey before... Um, uh, death takes him away, and that beca- the, the the chess match. Be- it's sort of a movable feast. It becomes this framing device that we come back to, I don't know, three to five mm. times in the entire story. But there's definitely a, a film with direction, with movement that happens um, throughout. Um, so he's back from the Crusades abroad with uh, a character named Jones, who's sort of a traveling companion. They're coming back after ten years of religious crusades. And they enter back into this Europe that's just a haunted world of plague, religious fervor, superstition, and human br- brutality. It's not the brutality of the Northmen. It's not bloody, um, but death and violence are everywhere. But I think a couple things that start, struck me were there's a lot less music and a lot less noise. So, And it's not just... Yeah. Um, uh, audio silence. There's also there a sort of visual silence. I don't know if you can appreciate this, but it's not like these big images that are just brutal and trying to give you a lot of story. It's more like he takes his time. He shows you beautiful images, but it's this sort of silence uh, for the eyes. You're not worried about cuts happening again and again so that it disrupts your enjoyment of the film. It's really just a very purposeful and pensive piece. Um, but as I said, I think it captures that slow time um, a lot better than the Northman would. Yosef uh, and, I'm sorry, uh, Antonius and Jons encounter these actors who are Yosef and Mia. I think uh, the Mia character is B.B. Uh, Anderson. He was, he was in Mark Bergman's girlfriend at the time, I think. Oh, yeah. That's right? yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah, because she's in a bunch of his movies, isn't she? I think this is why. Yes, a lot, a lot. Um, and these are kind of the most Christian characters in the film, interestingly enough. And, and, and they're actors, they're traveling actors. Um, Yosef, I should say the most Christian in my eyes, perhaps. Um, right. Yosef uh, sees uh, the Virgin Mary and Jesus just as um, uh, Antonius Block had seen death. And so it's like life is coming to him. He's got a baby with, um, with um, Mia. Um, but his experience seems much more lively, more about life and less about death. Um, even though his wife doubts him, she just says, oh, you're crazy, you're having visions, and uh, um, maybe she's right. Um, I'll talk a little bit about like the style of this film quickly, because on that Mark Maron podcast, uh, Maron points out to Eggers, he says, you know, a lot of, I felt like I was watching oil paintings you know, in your film, The Northman. It felt like these big, grandiose pictures. And it struck me, because this film is all about photography. Cinema is actually about photography. It's not about oil paintings. <laughs> I think oil painting, you've got to stare at, you've got to look for details for long periods of time, and it's not moving. Um, cinema is about photography, and the photography in this film just quite plainly kicks yeah. ass. This is a black and white film, and Bergman's always using different camera angles for different um, characters throughout the story, and it's all just beautiful. The man knows how to use film. And Eggers, for all of his uh, staging and blocking and theatrical stuff and, and the epic nature of the film, and a lot of it's computer-generated, yeah, of course, it doesn't look like photography. 
and you're trying to do too much. If you're filming oil paintings, you're not making a film. If you're using photography to tell a story, you're making a film. <laughs> and I think that really, really struck me in this film. Um, God does not come off looking very good. He's punishing uh, <laughs> sinners with plague. Feels like COVID. Um, some soldiers and a priest are planning to burn a woman because they sh- think she's caused the plague by having sex with the devil. Um, and Antonius and Jans are really on on a vengeance of their own, or a revenge trip of their own, uh, because they were told by some people, some men of the church, that you should go to the the Middle East and plunder and kill and come back with riches. And I don't think they liked what they did. But, actually, yeah. they <laughs> had a terrible experience. So they're while they're being sort of chased down by death, or certainly the Antonius Block character is. Um, they're also really questioning um, God. So this is a, I mean, this is a film with massive messages all over the place, as opposed to having no message whatsoever. <laughs> um, there's this one scene that I would talk about a little bit because um, there's this moment where the actors are putting on a show in a town, but then religion sort of becomes the more powerful force of storytelling because all this long parade of Christians flagellating themselves, blaming themselves, and scaring the hell out of locals passes through town. Um, and it's like the big set piece in the film, I feel. And it's the one point where Bergman just does something super smart, um, where he starts, that's where he starts cutting ah. quickly. There are lots of little six and seven uh, second cuts. Right. So that's, you know, the most, most of this film is very thoughtful and, and it takes time. But in that scene, I think just because he's working with a smaller budget, he's got to use his, uh, his brain to make this thing work. There are lots, you sort of skip through that with a bunch of cuts. Things are, you know, it's not matched up perfectly. So he's not trying to recreate it from diff- the same scene from a couple of different angles. He's actually just looking for little different bits of information. And that's the point where he does give it um, to you pretty quickly. It's followed by a tavern scene, which for me is the tone and the technology that uh, Eggers was looking for. <laughs> like it's, it's rustic, you know, these are people eating out of bowl, uh, bowls in a in this sort of very very wooden and mud kind of yeah. tavern. Um, no manners. I don't know if they even <laughs> had utensils. Uh, uh, candles everywhere. I mean, it just felt very authentic. And upon reading about the film, apparently there's no historical accuracy whatsoever. But it, it definitely felt Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, with the day to day action, uh, it's a funny scene because the the sound doesn't really match very well. So it's um, uh, I don't. I'm not surprised by that because it's uh, the 1950s, and I, I think again they just sort of did what they could. I think often um, this post sync sound scene. gives scenes a bit of a dreamlike quality, though, doesn't it? Which I really yeah. like, and I yeah, think yeah. For something like this yeah. absolutely lends to the to the atmosphere. Yeah, it didn't bother me, and I wasn't surprised by it. Um, uh, but Antonio Blocks really he connects with these characters, even though he's on this revenge mission. Uh, he connects with the actors, and then he has this perfect moment. I think this is where he realizes I love life. And if it ends right now, that's probably the best way. They're kind of celebrating. They've gotten the other actor sort of out of trouble. He gets in trouble in that bar scene, and they start humiliating the actor. Um, But they all sort of regroup outside of town. And unwisely, given the fact there's a plague going on, they share this bowl of strawberries that they pass around, and they share a bowl of milk milk that they all drink from. And you're wondering, oh, it's no no wonder you guys are all (laughs) got to be more sanitary. Um, so uh, that that is that, that scene happens. is like, like that, pleasures of the flesh distilled, isn't it? It's just yes, yeah, it's yeah. like lying in the grass, eating wild strawberries yes. and fresh milk straight out oh. of the cow. It's like it's, this is yeah. the stuff of life distilled into a moment. It's so beautifully Precisely. done. Yeah, absolutely. It was really beautifully done. Um, and this is actually this this is something of a divine comedy at times. There are some really funny things in this film. Um, it's witty. It's it comes out in the dialogue a lot. 
Um, but the, the fighters battle with words more than they battle with swords. Um, one of my favorite lines was from Jons. He says, love is the blackest of all plagues. And been, <laughs> they've been walking through this wretched area, um, just absolutely spoiled by plague. And uh, he's talking about love because of one character sort of heartbroken. Um, and then I think uh, for me, one of the big moments was uh, there's a point where they're going to they're gonna burn that young woman who had sex with the devil at the stake. Um, and it's not a graphic uh, bur- body burning or anything like that. It's incredible for what it, it's incredible for what it doesn't show more yeah. than from what it shows. Um, it's all about the witnesses. It's all about Block and Yans who've been thinking about God, thinking about the Crusades, and they're faced with their own inability to do anything to save this woman. They're faced with um, knowing that they cannot act, that God is letting the moment happen, and they are either unwilling or unable or not destined by God to do anything about it. And that is just a it's a tragic moment. Um, they leave you knowing that she's about to get onto the fire. They're going to put her there. Um, but he doesn't show that to you. He doesn't have to show that to you because the real horror isn't what the actors cannot do, I think, or the, the actual characters cannot do. Um, so that was uh, – that's sort of it. The classic scene towards the end is eventually death is going to catch up with you. You can cheat all you want in that chess match. You can be the best player in the world. You could be Gary Kasparov and maybe beat death, but you're not going to beat death. He eventually comes and – and gathers the whole, sort of the whole gang. Um, it's not just uh, Antonius Block's time to die. It's everyone's it's everyone, time. isn't it? Um, yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's another Hamlet-style ending because everybody in the movie yes. basically dies at the end, apart from the actors. Yeah. Oh, spoilers again. Yeah. Um, that that scene at, at the moment, the, um, they go to Block's castle, and he has this castle, and he meets his wife, mm-hmm. and then death arrives. And the, it's interesting you're talking about silence, that you know, death arrives, and all of the characters just stare at him, and kind of at us. Yeah. Some of them are staring at him. Some of them are staring straight at the camera in silence. Yes. I just think it's such a moving, beautiful, humane yeah. scene. It's like uh, everybody yeah. realizes, you know, this is the moment. This is it. It's arrived. And mm-hmm. you know, everyone approaches it the same way and differently. It's just a beautiful bit of film. It's so fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because they, they both sort of introduce themselves to get death. Yeah. And they also sort of excuse themselves to a certain extent. They're saying, like, I'm the blacksmith. <laughs> and I didn't, yes. I, didn't, I didn't kill my wife. I didn't kill her. So they're sort of saying, they're, I think they accept that death's going to happen. But at the same time, they're saying, you know, this is who I am. They're sort of telling death who they are, what they've done. I mean, life, life is flashing before their eyes and they're summarizing it in yeah. a sentence, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's so quotable, this film. The one I wrote down here is, um, yeah. I think, just before... Um, the woman is burned a block, I think, or maybe it's Jones, the squire. He says, faith is a heavy burden, like loving someone in the darkness who never comes when you call. Is that, this film is yeah. um, so eloquently tackles all these massive, yeah. massive themes. I've written here, I've read a little box here, of death, religion, faith, fear, doom, and the lightness of life, the end times. It's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's not frightened of approaching these massive, massive themes. On although yeah. that it's it, again, um, it has this similar theme of trying to express the medieval mindset by showing that the natural and the supernatural sort of coexist in the same space. That the yeah. guy who's the actor is if, has these visions, um, but we, the audience, we also see the visions and we kind of question: what well, kind of is it real? Is it not real? You know, death is there playing chess. Some of the actors see him, some of them don't. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, but death and the the Virgin Mary. And the visions, they all kind of exist within this same space. It's not that they're in another place. Um, yeah. That, uh, that the, you know, the characters are living in the supernatural and the natural world at the same time. And yet, yeah. that said, 
I feel that the, the, the characters on the Seventh Seal feel much more modern to me. You were talking about how historical accuracy is completely out the window. To we in the 20th century, mm. it seems, you know, a great portrait of, yeah. of, 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 of the Middle Ages. But Crusades happened way before that. Witch burning was something that happened yeah. way after that. They're all anachronisms. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. But the, 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 the people in the medieval garb um, that we see in this film still... Oh. You know, they're, they're, they have the faces of modernity. These are modern people. The crisis of the late Middle Ages is the same as the crisis of the mid of the 20th century. This is a film made only 12 years after the end of the Second World War um, when you know Europe has been uh, decimated and the, the, the imagery of the Second World War is still um, very vivid in people's minds. Um, and that end-time scenario informs the film in the same way that the kind of the, the black death informs the, the actual events of the film. So it's, you know, a, a film from a different time. Um, yeah. But, um, but it shows that these themes of human existence have been the same for, you know, for 2000 years. It, it is a, it's a beautiful film. It looks so wonderful. This quality of silence, you know, not just the audio silence, the visual silence, the stillness, um, and wonderfully, it clocks in at 94 minutes, doesn't it? I think, or 90. Yes. Wow, <laughs> it's now hanging around, yeah. it's just 50 minutes shorter than the Northman, and uh, and yet yeah. it still manages to cover death, religion, faith, fear, doom in the end times. Um, <laughs> what, what a magnificent achievement! The, the reason that the film is um so iconic and often quoted is because it's just brilliant and not because it's it is just you know, it's easy to lampoon. Um, it's a magnificent piece of work. I'd be interested to show this to a 12 to 25 year old audience now. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, give them the popcorn and the, and the cola and, and, and force them to sit down and watch it. I bet, I bet a lot of them would find this perfectly watchable yeah. actually. Well, we have a lot of 12 to 24 year old listeners, so I'm sure they're going <laughs> to pick that up at the yes. video store and give it a whirl. Um, I was going to say that it, it's a very rare example of the theatricality really coming through as a positive in cinema. I think yeah. like the dialogue, a lot of those witty, witty lines and a lot of those really, Pensive moments come from dialogue that feels very theatrical, just two characters really talking about some issue. Never for a long, long time. They're not long discussions, but they are full of just wonderful, insightful, and witty uh, takes on life and uh, and all those things you were talking about, death, religion. It's, yeah, it's, it's plague. Yeah, beautifully written. Yeah, so economical, isn't it? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think he sets up, you know, the Yosef character... Um, who sees the visions that his wife doesn't see, uh, it's set up pretty well. You're talking about what's real and what's not. Um, and the middle, there's a middle, he sort of has three visions, one where it's the Virgin Mary, I think, early on. Then he sees death playing chess with Block, and that's actually happening, right? I mean, we know that as viewers. Um, so is that a vision or not? And I think that helped Bergman a lot because it really mixes things together because that actually is part of the story. That is actually happening. And then the last scene is sort of a classic. I think Woody Allen does a take on it in one of his films, Love and Death or something, where uh, death is sort of taking them away in this parade of dancers and they're all going up to die, but they're doing this really ugly, awkward <laughs> dance. And then Joseph sees that as well, and that's kind of the climax of the film. And that is actually sort of really happening, right? It's not um, him seeing uh, the Virgin, who he sees early on. And I think she looks like a queen in that yeah, first scene. Yeah, yeah. And she has a baby, and he has a baby about the same age. And, uh, and presumably that's Jesus. It's the Virgin Mary taking yeah. hands for the I, walk or something. I think like I, it looks like they've stepped out of a Dura woodcut or something like that. It's, it has that yeah. kind of, yeah, that Northern European, uh, sort yeah. of quite mannered artistic feel. 
And I say that they are the, kind of the most Christian characters because they're not flagellating, they're not talking in these platitudes. They're actually just good people. It's, they're nice people. They're just traveling around trying to entertain people. Um, and they just feel like they are the most Christian. And, you know, he's able to see... Um, I'm going to say that he's able to see the Virgin Mary in human people, right. perhaps, or he can yeah. see uh, death in human people. He's just in touch with, with people on that level. So I think that what's, that's what kind of makes him uh, feel more um, uh, Christian to me. There's a great bit of trivia about that final shot of the, the characters all going, like being led off in the dance of death, which is apparently um, yeah. it's it's not the actors that we've seen in the rest of the film. Apparently it's a few people from it's the not, crew. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yep. it's just the sky just happened to be just right at this moment. So yeah. so kind of Bergman said, oh, quick, 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 run up on the hill, run up, run up onto the hill yeah. and just like hold hands, just just kind of you know dance up the hill a bit. Uh, we'll quickly get the shot. Yeah. Um, so it was just kind of sandwiched in. Um, uh, without even using the proper actors, and yet it's created this fantastic, iconic, proper medieval-looking yeah. visual moment. I mean, it also feels like a scene that steps straight out of a woodcut. It's, um, it's yeah. feels you know, so much of the time. There's a wonderful scene in the in a church that they pass through, which is the same thing, like taking the art of the times or vaguely of the times and really making that part of the story. So I'm, I'm glad you're talking about woodcuts because there's a, a fairly lengthy scene where there's an artist doing murals in this uh, this church, very, very small town church um, that sort of depict the ugliness of the plague. Um, and those look like sort of a northern European yeah. woodcuts of the time. As yeah, well. absolutely. So, there are just so many touches. So, I mean, it's, it's, and he's doing it in photography. He's not doing it in oil paintings. It's not like you have to look really hard for a long period of time <laughs> at something that's whizzing by you, which is impossible to do. It's more like he's photographed it really well. And those, you know, he's, he's incorporating art into the cinema and it, it works here. So it's just, it's a really genius piece. The, uh, the end of The North Man um, did make me feel, I kind of, I left the cinema with an overwhelming sense of kind of emptiness and nihilism, I think. That it's it's mm-hmm. uh, you know it ends on a, such a downer. Even you know the triumph of the central character is kind of a loss for everybody else. It's it's um, yeah it's you know dour and sad and a um, a pyrrhic victory. And I feel like even though the end of the seventh seal features you know, another scene where all of the characters in the film die, um, somehow although there is emptiness and nihilism and despair within the body of the film, there's um, it ends on a moment of kind of optimism and hope, doesn't it? That uh, yeah. that the actors have been through this big storm and um, they've come out the other side and the sun has come out. And the, although they've seen that their fellow travellers have died, you know they're still alive. That the the, the, mm-hmm. the baby is still alive, isn't it? Um, yeah. In the Northman, um, uh, Robert Eggers is not afraid to murder children. Um, whereas at least in the Seventh yeah. Seal, Bergman you know, has the restraint to let the little baby live. <laughs> yes, and that I think is <laughs> yeah that, that that's what uh, means that you can you can leave the cinema after watching the Seventh Seal and feel like life is still worth living and you can go on. Yeah, um, what a little tone touch that yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe that's you know that could have just kind of turned around that the, the whole final um, kiss off of the Northman. If you're able yeah. to sew in just a little bit of you know a little strand of golden hope there at the end. I was going to suggest uh, to listeners, if you want to throw a third film in, which I think might be kind of interesting, I would say Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Dead might be a nice uh, a third film if you wanted to make it a, a trio, um, just because that is sort of a, the Hamlet story as well from the inside. Um, and it's 
just interesting. It's funny, and it might be a little lighter than <laughs> the Seventh Seal and the Northman. So now I, I saw Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as a play. Um, I, I saw it kind of I think I, when I was a teenager and didn't really know the story of Hamlet at the time. So I found the whole thing utterly inexplicable and so hard to follow. Oh, yeah. um, I must yeah. try and go back and find that now. Um, having yeah. seen having seen Hamlet in various different forms now, I wonder whether Rosencrantz and Guildenstern yeah. would now make a little bit of sense to me. I think it'd probably make more sense. Um, obviously, not nearly the, the the Viking violence or anything like that. Um, and it's uh, metaphysical, but certainly not uh, religiously metaphysical. Um, but Tim Roth's great, and Gary Oldman fantastic. It's just a great pairing, and uh, I think it's worth uh, worth a right. watch. Worth a watch. Ballistic goes. Fantastic. So these, I reckon these have been two films with a, a combined body count bigger than Die Hard. Uh, the Northman and the Seventh <laughs> Seal, everybody dies. Um, That's true. Pretty much everybody dies. But uh, you leave the cinema feeling quite different, depending on these two movies. Um, yeah. Seventh Seal made, so a quick bit of maths failure now. So yeah. This is uh, well over 60 years ago. Um, is that right? Nin- yeah, 65, yeah, 55, 57 to 22. Yeah, 65 years ago. I uh, I don't know whether people will still be watching The Northman in 65 years. I wonder mm. whether Ingmar Bergman imagined that people would watch The Seventh Seal in 65 years. 65 years is a very long time for a piece of art to survive. Yeah. Um, the fact that it has done um, is an indicator of its quality. It's just a wonderful film. And I think people will still be watching The Seventh Seal in 65 years. I think it will still yeah, be definitely. modern and relevant in 65 years. The Northman, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what Robert Eggers does next. I hope this film performs yeah. well enough for him to get an, um, a, a bite at a, a big project again. I don't know what he plans to do. It'll be interesting to see. Um, maybe there should be a little bit less knife violence next time. I don't know. Maybe mm. that's just a, an indicator of my age. Perhaps I'm just yes, yeah, old and conservative now. I agree. I mean, I I was never really into violent, violent films. I mean, it doesn't bother me if it really has a meaning and... If it's not quite so sinister, but there were some there were some killings in here that were just over the top for me, and even the light violence was pretty much off my <laughs> scale of appreciation. So, I would say um, approach with if caution. you can imply it, if you can imply it more uh, than you actually show it, I think that's better. It doesn't have to be as explicit as it is in, in the Northman. Um, but you're right, yep. it world farts, and I, I, I admitted that earlier in this podcast. <laughs> it just duly noted. Yeah, I'm not the demographic for that film. Uh, so this has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Thank you for joining us. Um, the Seventh Seal is available everywhere forever. Northman still in cinemas here in the UK. Um, I'm sure it'll be streaming soon. Um, just uh, make sure you wear some kind of washable overall before you watch it. Uh, this has been a good fun, and uh, we will see you for the next episode. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye.